In the Perspectrum podcast, we discuss controversial topics. Outside of this context, Michael and I are both working professionals. While doing this show, we are not acting as agents or representatives of our respective institutions. And none of the views that we express reflect the outlooks of our employers. So don't come to my office and throw toilet paper at me. And I don't have an office, but don't come to my cube. Welcome to the Perspectrum. I'm Nathan Seelove. And I'm Michael Bloom. And today we have some exciting topics to talk about. We're going to discuss cancel culture a little bit more, except we're going to be discussing it more from the point of view of how it's being used as a manipulatory tactic by uh, Republicans. And then we're going to discuss the history of the filibuster and some ways it could potentially be reformed. And then we're going to finish up by talking about... What's the word? Libertarian fraternalism. <laughs> An oxymoron if there ever was one. Or at least seemingly. Perhaps yeah, I, I kept thinking in my head, like, is it libertarian? Like, did he say patriarchy? What was it? <laughs> uh, in, in, case, in case he hadn't figured out, um, uh, that that is primarily going to be uh, uh, Michael's time well, to I'll, shine. <laughs> I'll definitely lay out the framework for it. Because, um, like, one of the things we like to do on the show is kind of lay out different philosophical frameworks, uh, arguments for the purpose of government to help you kind of like figure out what policies are good policies and bad policies and, and what you, how you think the world should be set up. And so this is one of those topics and Nathan and I will all like kind of walk through what it, uh, how it's defined and how it works. And then we can discuss whether it makes any damn sense at all. Yeah. And I'll (laughs) probably make snarky comments along the way. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So, uh, Michael, Let's get started with the COVID numbers. All right. So uh, worldwide at this point, we have 118.6 million cases, which is up from 115.8 million cases last week. So that's about 2.8 million new cases this week or a 2.4% increase um, in one week. Um, this is pretty much the same week over week increase that we, that we saw last week. Um, so kind of just... Uh, stay in the course. Um, so far, 2.63 million people in the world have died, which is up from 2.57 million last week. So about 60,000 new deaths, um, which is a little bit lower than we saw last week, about 20,000 deaths fewer week over week uh, than we saw last week. Um, but it is still an increase of 2.3% um, over over the previous week. Um at this point in the world, uh, about 4.1 doses have been administered uh, for every 100 people, which is up from 3.6 last week, um, which is still like you know way behind having this thing solved, but uh, definitely some progress. Yeah. Um, in the U.S., at this point, we've had uh, 29.9 million cases, which is up from 29.5 million cases seven days ago, which is about a 1.4% increase, which is pretty damn low. Mm. Um, lower than the rest of the world. Um, yeah, our, our daily new cases have, have just been trending down. They've plateaued a little bit in the last couple of days, but for the most part, they've been trending down for a few weeks. Yeah. That being said, uh, a lot of people are still dying. So at this point... We've hit 542,000 deaths, which is up from 533,000 last week. So about 9,000 new deaths um, in one week. 
um, which, you know, is that it's about 1.7% increase in total deaths, which is, again, lower than the rest of the world, but still high. Yeah, so that's still about 1,300 deaths per day, um, which is, again, better than the 1,700 deaths per day that we saw the previous week. But that's still, if you annualize that, that's still 474,000 deaths per year, Um, which means that it has dropped down as a leading cause of of death on an annual basis to the third after cancer and heart disease, but still, you know, in the top three. Yeah. So, Man, I... I really think that history is going to be very kind to Joe Biden because <laughs> of this. Now, I yeah. will say that not all of this is him doing a stellar job. A yeah, huge part of sure. it is just the fact that we've developed the vaccine at this point. Yeah. Um, and, you know, y- you might be able to give him some credit for uh, vaccine distribution, and you might be able to give them some credit for incorporating plans and also taking it more seriously. But I, I do think that a lot of the uh, the approval of Joe Biden is very much based on the fact that coincidentally, yeah. uh, it seems to be going down right around the time that he became president. And for that reason, I think history is going to remember him very fondly, mm-hmm. even though he didn't really do he hasn't really done that much yet yeah yeah i mean we shouldn't we shouldn't discount yeah i'm not i don't the, mean to discount it he's only but but he's only been yeah. in office for like a few months at this point yeah exactly you're you're absolutely right like yeah he would not be looked on nearly this kindly if he'd been elected in july or something yeah. like that <laughs> you're absolutely yeah. right but at yeah. this point um to that to that point nathan um about 18.4% of the population has received at least one dose, which is awesome. Mm, That's yeah. almost a fifth of the population that has received at least one dose, dose of the vaccine. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I'd say Biden probably does deserve some credit for that. Yeah, yeah. I'd say that's right. Um, but again, like as with as with all this, having a, a good person in leadership is really critical. Like we can, like yeah. just having someone that listens to experts and enables their teams to work really makes a difference. But also like, Ultimately, these distribution networks are through our local yeah. and state governments. So we should definitely give them a pat on yeah. the back, too. Yeah, give um, them a pat on the back. And, I mean, give the, the companies that developed these vaccines. Absolutely. You know, yeah. You know, Moderna, the fact that Johnson, Johnson & Johnson, Johnson is yeah. partnering with Merck to produce yeah. a vaccine is crazy. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's pretty excellent. Um, and we're at almost 10% of the population that has been fully vaccinated. So 9.7% up from 8.1% um, at the time of our last recording. So yeah. that's pretty good. Now, that yeah. being said, 1.6% increase in the population that has been vaccinated in one week still puts us at like, you know, uh, another 10 months to, to herd immunity. But... Um, if what Biden says is true and we're going to be getting a bunch more vaccines and hopefully a lot faster distribution, hopefully that'll be, that'll be significantly shortened. Yeah. Hey, when I get my vaccine, I'm going to celebrate by licking every doorknob in my apartment. <laughs> That's weird. Most people just hang out with friends, <laughs> but you know, you do you Why in your apartment. I feel like you got to lift the outside doorknobs. <laughs> Those are the really dangerous ones. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm not an animal. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, yeah, that's the thing. 
<laughs> the CDC does not recommend you try to leap tall buildings in a single bound after you've had the sex scene. Yeah. yeah. Um, anyways, so let's talk about cancel culture, dude. I guess we're going to talk about cancel culture. <laughs> yeah. So what's kind of funny is, so we have talked about cancel culture in its own segment. And I think that we had a pretty interesting and kind mm-hmm. of nuanced approach to it. Yeah. It wasn't thinking of it as inherently a bad thing or a good thing. Mm-hmm. And we did have some critiques on it yeah. because I do seriously believe that in some circumstances, uh, the idea behind the principle of cancellation can go too far and potentially negatively impact discourse. Mm-hmm. That being said, the Republicans <laughs> have done something that they do very often, that they do very well. They did pretty much the exact same thing with uh, the gun rights debate, which was take a discussion that's an important discussion to be had in which there are interesting nuanced points of view on any side and completely tainted it with fear-mongering <laughs> bullshit yeah 100% straw manning stupid virtue signaling and just meaningless propaganda yeah you might be wondering why we're talking about this now and it's kind of a in some ways a a, a, a weird overlap of events that I don't know, a couple years ago, I would think that I, you know, should be psychologically examined after saying this, but it's, it's kind of a combination of CPAC and Dr. Seuss. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's (laughs) so, so yeah. So if you haven't heard about this and Mr. Potato Head and Mr. You can't forget Mr. Potato Head. (laughs) Oh my good, good Lord. Yeah. So, so currently um Republicans in the GOP are angry and up in arms about kind of kicked off by Dr. Seuss Enterprises deciding to stop publishing six Dr. Seuss books because they retain they uh they contain um certain racist images and like dog whistling and stuff. So yeah. They decided they, they, their process was super thorough. Actually, they took a bunch of like, they really deliberated on this. They took a bunch of feedback from teachers and, and, uh, you know, educators and readers and all these things. They like, they thought about it long and hard and determined that like, these were the books that they wanted to, to take out of circulation. And (laughs) yeah. And Republicans were like, give us our racist images back, our racist children's images back. (laughs) Well, not only that. Okay. Okay. So. First off, they said that this means that Dr. Seuss has been canceled, which is hilarious because it was Dr. Seuss Enterprises that actually did it. Yeah. Second off, it was only six books. And let me just read the list of the six books. None that you Uh, have never heard of. So the six books are, and to think that I saw it on Mulberry Street, if I ran the zoo, McElligot's Pool, On Beyond Zebra, Scrambled Egg Super, and The Cat's Quizzer. Now, I like to How think is this that dude I... one of the most popular children's <laughs> authors ever. Those are gibberish. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, okay. I I have a bunch of Dr. Seuss books. Mm-hmm. I've read a lot of Dr. Seuss books. In fact, the first book that I ever was able to read all the way through was Green Eggs and Ham. Wow, like what, Dr. What Seuss a racist has a child you were. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Seuss has a very special place in my heart. Yeah. 
I've literally, I've never read any of these and I've never heard of any of them, mm -hmm. except maybe McElligot's Pool. But the only reason why I've heard of that is because it was casually referenced in uh, Sue's School Junior. And I was in that play when I was <laughs> in, uh, when I was in middle school. But literally every single one of these, yeah. other than that one, I've never even heard of, yeah. and I've never read any of these. Mm -hmm. These are not his most popular ones. Which is, which is, like, I don't want to go too deep into this, but if you, like, critically think about this example, it's emblematic of a lot of these, like, similar examples that Republicans have latched onto. So, one, they're championing something that no one really cares about. Yeah. Like it's, 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 they're latching onto something that really doesn't matter just to like try to pretend that it has some cultural significance. And to do that, they're extrapolating from a specific narrow example and extrapolating that to being all of Dr. Seuss. Yeah. And like Kevin McCarthy on the floor of the house, like straight up said that Democrats were outlawing Dr. Seuss. Which is a lie. Which is just a lie. I mean, yeah. there's, there's, there's no, there's not even any truth to it. Mm -hmm. It's not even based on a misunderstanding. A private company made the decision to stop publishing books. And yeah. one of the things about this story that I find the most hilarious is like, if you really think, if you, if you want to look at this specific example and think, who is the bad guy in this situation? Mm -hmm. Like, if you are against the fact that they are no longer publishing these books if you want to point to a bad guy then you would have to look at the person who actually did it which is the company mm -hmm. amid the controversy dr seuss dominated the bestseller list and took up six of the top 10 positions on uh the usa today's top five bestseller list so basically People bought a bunch of Dr. Seuss books. They gave Dr. Seuss Enterprises a <laughs> fuck ton of money. Oh, my God. <laughs> when Dr. Seuss Enterprises, they're the ones that you're actually pissed at. Let me tell you. If, <laughs> what the hell? If I was like a first-year business analyst working at Dr. Seuss and I found this trend, I would be like, all right, I guess we should just cancel more books. <laughs> We're going to make so much more money. Exactly. Yeah. Like, oh, my God. How stupid can you be? Yeah. I but mean, the thing is, it's not just stupidity, right? It's intentional. And that's where it kind of, like, overlaps with CPAC, right? It's like, it's not, and that's, I think, partially what we're talking about today, is that it's not just that these like people are accidentally mistaking, you know, six books for all of Dr. Seuss and Dr. Yeah. Seuss Enterprises for all Democrats or like blaming like the fact that I'm sure, you know, Dr. Seuss like Enterprises talked to some Democrats who thought these were racist or whatever. It's not just that like they are making these mistakes. It's that it is an intentional strategy. And yeah. it's and and linguistically, because they've they've done this with other things before. Linguistically, like taking a term like cancel culture, which you should try to define narrowly and specifically, which and, they don't, which they don't, and and through repetition and applicate and misapplication, causing it to lose all meaning. 
is called linguistic bleaching. Yeah. And it's not an accident. Like it's it's the exact same thing that Republicans have done with socialism. And they're just applying it to culture. So socialism is that exact thing, but in the economic sphere. So like there's a reason why reasoned arguments about what socialism is or isn't, its merits, its demerits, and whether it can be applied or rather its total inapplicability to literally anyone in American politics. There is a, there's a reason why those arguments don't work, and that's because the term has been so misapplied and overused and bleached that you can't argue that it's not applicable because it literally has no meaning other than the bad thing. And they're trying to do the exact same thing with culture, with like this cancel culture thing, and basically saying that like any time that the Democrats act in a way like to like, or that or that there's literally any cultural, not even just the Democrats, any cultural pushback, like a cultural boycott of, or of a you know, something that the Republicans like, that it is cancel culture, and that way they can basically say. Cancel culture is anything that negatively affects something that you like. Yeah. And by extension, it fits with their whole narrative that they are the party of freedom, that they are the yes. party of limited government. But, I mean, the argument falls apart very easily logically mm -hmm. when you look at the fact that when it comes to cancel culture— there's nothing political about it. There's nothing no. legislative exactly. about it. It wasn't you think, Democrats. Do you think this legislature could pass literally <laughs> anything? Like, yeah. not a chance. Yeah. <laughs> it's not like AOC introduced a resolution in the House to condemn Dr. Seuss or, you know, passed a law mm -hmm. that said we're going to ban Dr. Seuss from now yeah. on. She couldn't even do that. Like, that wouldn't even be yeah. constitutional. You it's not even as if Biden put out an executive order that said, like, our agencies are going to do a thorough search of racist images in children's books. Yeah. Like, and then no. start just banning them left and right. Uh, but but even not to... banning them, just reviewing them. Yeah, like... just reviewing them. Like, and not even banning them in this case, just no. not publishing them. Yeah. So, so there's nothing actually political about it. Mm -hmm. There's nothing that, there's no ways that policy will be impacted by this. Yeah. And that right there, I think, is the important point to make in the important distinction because republicans are using this in order to try to fundraise and fearmonger about democrats being in charge but yeah even with democrats in charge even if they wanted to there was nothing they could do mm -hmm. so and and honestly they're not even doing it they're not even yeah. doing anything yeah so so this right here is the next major strategy mm -hmm. because republicans have realized that they have lost so many public opinion battles. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I I believe I talked about this last week, but let's talk about it again. The Republican tax bill, yeah, was had had a a twenty five percent approval rating, mm -hmm. and a huge part of that is because eighty percent of all earnings will go to the top one percent after ten years. So the argument was okay. This seems unpopular right now, but once it gets passed, the American people are just going to love it because it's going to completely get rid of the deficit 
or it's going to be deficit neutral because of all the extra revenue that it's going to create. And, you know, the American people are going to see so much more money in their paycheck and they're just going to love it. And that approval rating is just going to increase. That didn't happen. They exploded the deficit and people got peanuts. Like I got 11 extra dollars in my paycheck from from that tax. You're bill. welcome. <laughs> so they've lost that battle. They've lost battles on important issues like the minimum wage. Minimum wage is overwhelmingly popular. Mm -hmm. They've lost battles on health care. I mean, the most extreme version of what Democrats are proposing, Medicare for all, is, is overwhelmingly popular. Yeah. Like even, and, and more moderate proposals like a public option is even more popular. Yeah. I mean, um, they literally just opposed an exceedingly popular stimulus bill all, yeah. that was super similar to one that they had already passed. Yeah. Like, and not a single one of them voted for it. Yeah. Like they, they, they need something to distract from the fact that they don't have true policy. Like they, they don't have any policies to offer. Well, they don't have any policies that the American people like. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> like they have policies, and they want to they want to pass them because it's going to help their donors. Mm -hmm. But they know that if that was if all they did was pass policy that you know directly hurts the American people and directly helps their donors, that that's that's not going to be sustainable. So what they do is they pretend to be on your side mm -hmm. on meaningless culture war issues. They pretend that somehow those cultural issues, like this thing with Dr. Seuss, is related somehow to your decision to vote for a Democrat. And then they use that, they capitalize on that, to fearmonger yeah. you into supporting them. Yeah. You're that, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's like their, their legislative strategy is taken directly from a popular children's book green eggs and ham <laughs> where you know their perspective is oh once they try it they're gonna love it <laughs> at least that's what the tax bill <laughs> spoiler alert <laughs> <laughs> sorry i mean I'm gonna, it is a twist it is a twist ending sam i am um no but but you're right like and it, it's not a new thing right like the whole thing about like Confederate monuments was exactly the same type of argument, which which literally aligned like majority conservatives with alt right activists. Like th they somehow combined those groups over this culture war cancel culture type message, and and somehow they they got people all up in arms over statues that were put up in like between the 20s and the 70s specifically to try to like uh to preserve the lost cause narrative of the south like somehow they have yeah. they have they have even in the north there have been like these protests about these statues and it's all because their culture war narrative really does work and so we really should worry about it and push back on these vague problematic um and like overly broad and totally bleached terms like cancel culture. And we should do it before we get to a point where it becomes the new socialism, before we get to a point where you can't argue against it because no one knows what it means. Yeah. And the thing is, they don't have a comprehensive definition of what it means. No. I mean, case in point, there was that 
uh, there was that rapper that they had invited to CPAC, which mm -hmm. I might remind you, the theme of CPAC was American Uncancelled. Yeah. And they canceled this rapper because he had a history of making anti-Semitic comments. Mm -hmm. And the funny thing is, when that happened, the rapper accused them of cancel culture. Yeah. Which, I mean, that's kind Good. of what happened. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the thing. Like, why would why would a, a, an organization like P CPAC want to invite an anti-Semitic rapper? Yeah. Of course they wouldn't. Yeah. Like, like you're right. It, like we should be, we should be wary of extreme responses, um, culturally, but like, but at the same time, the, the reality that, uh, expressing a specific point of view has consequences is reasonable. That's part of discourse. That's part of the marketplace of ideas. Yeah. And, Republicans claim to be the party of capitalism, mm -hmm. of free market capitalism. And yet you have uh, Jim Jordan calling for congressional hearings on cancel culture, which would imply that he is trying to call for action to be taken in Congress mm -hmm. to prevent cancel culture. Now, keep in mind, cancel culture in no way is being uh, is being reinforced by Congress. Mm -hmm. So logically, the only thing he could hope to accomplish is to fight cancel culture in Congress. So what does yeah. that mean? What could that be in the form of? Well, one of the most common forms of cancel culture that conservatives often identify is people getting fired because their values are antithetical to the values of the company that they work for. Mm -hmm. Interesting, because they've always made the argument that employers should be free to do whatever the hell they want. In fact, they voted against the Equality Act. You know, the, 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 the law that would make it illegal to fire people for being gay or trans, that mm -hmm. law, they voted against that. I mean, if firing someone because of their sexual orientation or their gender identity isn't cancel culture, then what the hell is cancel culture? Yeah. So... And this, this, this brings it back to the important point. It has nothing to do with a principle of free speech. It has nothing to do with an overarching principle of you should be able to believe what you want, you should be able to be who you want, and you should be able to say what you want and not be afraid of losing your job. It's about, I want to be able to say whatever I want, no matter how racist, no matter how sexist, no matter how homophobic, and I don't want any consequences for it. Mm -hmm. Social or you know, at my job or anywhere. Yeah. 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 I want to, <laughs> I mean, they literally were angry about the website that was being used to coordinate attacks on the Capitol getting shut down by the, the, by Amazon who was hosting the website. Like what? That's not cancel culture. That's like preventing someone from breaking the law on your website or on your yeah. platform. Like, come on. So at the end of the day, I would say that I do believe in free market to an extent, but I also do believe in employment protection protections. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that if we are going to have a conversation about uh, employment protections because of the values of a company, that's a conversation worth having. But that's not the conversation they're having. That's not the conversation they're interested in having. Mm -hmm. So when 
elected Republicans talk about cancel culture. It's important to note that you shouldn't get bogged down by the fear behind what that word means. Instead, if you're ever having a conversation with somebody and they bring up cancel culture, engage them by asking, okay, what do you mean by that? Mm -hmm. What do you mean by cancel culture? Define it. You know, and then have a conversation based on how they define it. And you might find a lot of instances in which you can very easily provide clear examples of cancel culture happening on the right. Colin yeah. Kaepernick, mm -hmm. the Dixie Chicks. I mean, and then ask them how they feel about that. Mm -hmm. So uh, there are nuanced conversations to be had about this. They're just not happen on the, happening on the right right now. So now it's time for one of our more positive segments, Tips for Good. So, Nathan, why do we do Tips for Good every week? Well, we do Tips for Good every week because life on the farm is kind and laid back. Ain't much an old country boy like me can't hack. It's mm. early to rise and early to the sack. Mm. Thank God I'm a country boy. Mm. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah, that's that's true. Yeah. Thank God I'm a country boy. Yeehaw! <laughs> And but also, also make of course, world, to yeah, make a world a better place. Better yeah. place. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah that's for it. sure. That, that, that one. That for one. sure. So, Michael, what is our tip for good this week? Well, this week, our tip for good is a very, very, very exciting one. The CDC recently put out some interim guidance on uh, what people who are fully vaccinated can and can't do. And given that nearly 10% of the U.S. population is fully vaccinated, this is becoming more and more relevant every single day. Um, so we wanted to walk through exactly what their guidance currently is for those who are not yet vaccinated to give you some hope. And for those that are to give you some, some guidance and some resources and, uh, you know, some license to go out there and have a little fun. So, um, first of all, people are considered fully vaccinated after they have received, um, of a two dose vaccine after they've received their second dose, um, and waited two weeks. Or for a one-dose vaccine, uh, they're fully vaccinated after two weeks of their of receiving their single dose. And uh, so this is the list of things that the CDC says people who are fully vaccinated can do. First of all, they can visit with other fully vaccinated people indoors without a mask and without social distancing. Well, that just sounds like a good time. Yeah. Um, that's like a, a, a fully vaccinated party. It's awesome. Are there going to be doorknobs? <laughs> Um, and in fact, even more, more, uh, uh, even less restrictive than that is they can visit with unvaccinated people from a single household who are at low risk for severe COVID-19. Um, and they can hang out indoors without wearing a mask or social distancing, which I think is actually pretty awesome. So if you've got, if you're fully vaccinated and your friend who's not at high risk is fully vaccinated, bam, you can hang. Yeah. Um, and they can uh, refrain from quarantining and testing, even if they've had a known exposure, as long as they haven't presented any symptoms, hmm. which is awesome. Like yes. those three things are, as more people get vaccinated, like the, those three things are going to open up the world so much more. Yeah. Um, now you should still wear a well-fitted mask and maintain social distancing in public, um, you should still wear a mask and social distance 
um, when you're visiting with unvaccinated people who are at high risk for a severe uh, version of the disease, you should still wear a mask and maintain social distance um, when you're dealing with unvaccinated people from a few different households. Um, and you should probably not go to any big gatherings unless everybody has you know, brought their COVID-19 fully vaccinated sticker with them. And I, and I think that the the wearing masks in public makes sense, even mm -hmm. from a sort of social perspective. Yeah. Because, like, I, it's it seems to me like it would be so easy for you know some asshole that doesn't want to wear a mask. Yeah. To like, just be like, oh well, I'm not wearing a mask because I'm vaccinated, mm -hmm. and they're not actually vaccinated. Yeah. So it makes I mean from a social perspective. Uh, I, I don't know if this was the thought process, but it makes sense to me to still have people, uh, if, even who are vaccinated, uh, wear masks even when they're in public. Yeah, that makes sense. I think it makes sense. When I get vaccinated, I'm going to have a shirt made, and it's going to say, <laughs> don't worry, I'm vaccinated. <laughs> <laughs> so that's tips for good. Okay. So for our next segment, we are going to talk about something that is way more interesting than it sounds, the Senate filibuster. Now, before I'm you turn us off this. or fall asleep, <laughs> <laughs> this is actually like way more interesting than it sounds. I was when I was doing research on this, um, I like my mind was blown. Yeah, I will tell you guys, I I was far from an expert on this. I was like pretty ignorant. Um, of this issue before like prepping for this pod and wow yeah it's crazy yeah yeah I, I i majored in political science and like we briefly talked about this but we didn't get super in depth yeah so this research uh like some of it i i did kind of already know but the more i read the more i was like holy shit i literally <laughs> thought that you had to have 60 votes to pass a bill in the senate yeah, that's not how it works. Which is not how it works. Yeah, what the fuck? What that's not what it's about. Um, yeah, so one of the things that I think is uh, important to note is, real quick, let's talk about some of the common arguments, common talking points about preserving the filibuster. So the common argument about the filibuster, and I know that I'm making these arguments before we define it, and we'll, you know, we'll explain why in just a second. The common argument for preserving the filibuster is this idea that it was this constitutionally thought out uh, framework by the founding fathers to make it so that the Senate as a deliberative body would not uh, would not just pass things willy nilly. Mm -hmm. Like basically they wanted to make sure that the Senate was like almost a I guess you could call it like a de-radicalized. Yeah, more uh, deliberative, slow-moving, yeah. cooler-headed body. Exactly, exactly. Um, and the filibuster, because it preserves the power of the minority, is important to preserving that original intent. So here's the problem with that argument. All of it's bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> so, so let's talk about what originally created the filibuster. So when the rules for the Senate and the House of Representatives were originally being created, the deliberation rules were actually very similar. In fact, both houses um, had this rule. It was called the previous question motion, 
which basically made it so that a simple majority could vote to end debate on a specific issue. Yeah. So if you had in the Senate, if you had 51 people that well, voted to end debate. Well, not back then because well, there, there then. weren't that many senators. Yeah. So, <laughs> but, yeah. so if, if in the Senate, if you had 51% of people. <laughs> yeah, there you go. There you uh, go. <laughs> voting to end debate, then uh, you'd move on to, to voting on the, on the motion or the bill. Yeah. And same with the House. And what's interesting is that the House kept this motion, but the Senate got rid of it. Mm-hmm. So you might think, well, maybe the Senate got rid of it because, you know, they, they, they thought things out and they realized, hey, we, we really should make sure that whoever's in the minority party at least has some power to continue debate. Nope. It was literally just house cleaning. <laughs> like, so Aaron Burr, who was the vice president at the time, this was in 1805, was basically just like, hey, y'all, we got all these like random ass rules in the Senate that we really don't need. Like, come on, let's clean it up. Let's just clean things up. You know, like this this previ- this previous question rule. Like, do we need that? Come on, let's just throw it out. Like, what does it even do? Mm-hmm. And so they voted to get rid of it. And none of them actually voted to get rid of it because they had a specific reason to. They just voted to get rid of it because they were like, oh, well, yeah, house cleaning, I guess. I mean, Aaron Burr said we should get rid of it. You know, he's a cool guy. He killed Alexander Hamilton. Let's Let's do it. <laughs> let's do it. And so they just voted to get rid of it. And after that happened, nothing really changed for a while. Yeah. Because, so the idea behind a filibuster is that you are giving a speech or uh, or prolonging a debate in order to delay or prevent the passage of legislation. So the getting rid of the previous question rule which basically got rid of the the vote in order to end debate made it possible to have a filibuster but nobody actually thought about using it that way until years later yeah so because basically the idea that was, made it possible made it made it so that you couldn't force a bill that was under debate to move to a vote with just a simple yeah. majority anymore exactly but you know, there was still the underlying assumption of, okay, well, I guess we're just going to debate about this until we get bored of debating about it or until we've, you know, said all that needs to be said, and then we'll Mm -hmm. just do the vote, and whoever wins, wins. Man, what a good faith, rosy, happy time, sunshine, a rainbow (laughs) world they lived in. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, keep in mind, this was back when uh, ideologically political Mm -hmm. parties were not as polarized. Yeah. Now, of course, that started to change more and more as you're getting into, like, the... Um, the lead up to the Civil War, mm-hmm. where you start getting massive polarization. And then the first filibuster, the first real life filibuster happens in 1837, which is over 30 years after the previous question rule was taken out. Mm-hmm. And so then you started having it become this common occurrence in which anytime anybody didn't like a bill, they would just, you know, they would just talk about it. Yeah, they would just they would just talk about it. They would, you know, until either they completely delayed its passage or until they just got tired of yeah. talking about it. But note that, like, at the time, even though this was a new, relatively new strategy, it was also, uh, you know, relatively narrow. Like, you could delay it by some time. You you probably couldn't delay it indefinitely, and if you got lucky, you would delay it until like you know the session 
went into recess and then you'd have some extra time to delay it. But it wasn't like this hand grenade where all of a sudden no legislation could, could possibly get passed. Yeah. It kind of evolved into that naturally over time. Yeah. And what's interesting is now you have, uh, now this takes us to 1917, which was when uh, the closure rule started. So the closure mm-hmm. rule is basically when they decided, hey, we should probably have a specific number of people that it will take in order to vote to just end debate because yeah. we need to start passing things. This so basically, specific- it's the oh, previous question rule, but from with more people required. Yeah, exactly. So, um, so this actually happened during uh, uh, Woodrow Wilson's presidency, and. A lot of things had to sort of come in place in order to make this happen. There was the Billy Pulpit effect. Um, there was uh, the uh, the fact that there was a lot of scrutiny on the opposition party with regard to um, uh, Wilson's desire to uh, contribute to the war effort. Mm-hmm. And the, 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 keep in mind, this happened around the World War One era, uh, mm-hmm. the world, the time of World War One, and eventually they came. The, the Senate came to a compromise where they basically decided, all right, what if we make it so that it's a supermajority vote, yeah. right? And in this case, they defined a supermajority as two-thirds of the uh, of the Senate, which in today's terms means uh, 67 votes mm-hmm. in the Senate. So, you know, th- there was a lot of negotiation that went on, but eventually they, they passed this uh, closure rule, and they made it so that... Uh, and and they made it so that you could end debate if you had enough people vote on that. So this was to prevent further obstruction. And then eventually that got reduced even more to uh, to three fifths, which means in today's terms sixty votes in order to end debate. And then for a while, it just you know th- th- for a while that's just how it worked. It was mm-hmm. uh, sixty votes. For most issues, yeah, uh, in order to end debate, but people were actually having debates. Mm-hmm. Like people were actually s- sitting around having debates, giving long ass speeches, mm-hmm. and you know filibustering that in that regard. And now keep we in mind come also that at the time you were gumming up all of the Senate. Yeah, like if you were having a debate on a bill on the floor of the Senate. No other Senate business was going on. Yeah. You guys were dedicated to debating this bill, which meant that there was some, you know, if you wanted another bill further on the agenda to get to, there was some incentive to try to reach cloture. Yeah, which is actually what brings us to how it kind of works today, which is that nowadays people don't actually have the debates. People don't actually give the speeches with filibusters. All they do is say, I filibuster. Yeah. Yeah. Which basically just means that if there are uh, if there are forty one senators that are refusing to vote for cloture, then it's filibustered. Yeah, dead on arrival. Like it's just dead on arrival. So the uh, the majority leader just won't even bring it up because yeah. the idea is there's no point because they're just gonna they're just gonna hold up the Senate. Mm-hmm. So you don't and- even have. That today. Yeah. And even if they did bring it up, they could still discuss other business while it's being filibustered. 
Like he can basically just sit on the back burner indefinitely, which means that there's no incentive for any of those 41 people to defect and join the other side. Yeah. So effectively what this does today is it makes it so that any legislation that does not have 60 votes cannot be passed. Yeah. Now, there are some exceptions. Um, there is uh, budget reconciliation exceptions. Mm-hmm. So for budget reconciliations, um, that just requires a simple majority. And part of that is because there's a specific allotted amount of time for debate. And so once that allotted amount of time is done, then it's time for it to move forward. Mm. There's also an exception for court appointments, thanks to uh, some procedural changes in 2013 for uh, lower courts and for 2017 for the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. So in 2013, uh, Harry Reid changed the rules so that we could actually start getting some, uh, some people on the court. So that Obama could actually start appointing people on the court, and then in 2017, Mitch McConnell changed the rules so that uh, so that Trump could appoint uh, Neil Gorsuch mm-hmm. without like without the possibility of a potential filibuster. So, so the the history is super arbitrary. Yeah, absolutely, and that's huge, right? Like they one small rule change with a few cascading even smaller rule changes in the Senate has led our Senate, our deliberative body, which already disproportionately favors less populous states because every state gets two senators, so there's no proportional representation, all of a sudden takes it from a more representative body where it just takes a simple majority to pass legislation to... A, a body that is that is biased towards inaction because it requires a supermajority in order to be able to pass anything. So literally so already taking it from a less representative body and moving it from that to a non-representative body, one where where you know it it literally almost can't represent the the legislative will of the people because it's almost impossible to work legislation through that that um that actually represents the legislation that people would want i and i i want to emphasize this a bit more because the amount that this skews the power of the senate away from representing us in legislation legislative decisions is enormous so like let's keep in mind okay like for a bill to get passed into law it's got to go through the house the senate and get signed by the president right that's already a a system of fairly robust checks and balances going through two bodies that are meant to be representative not only of the proportional representation of the people in the house but also the like more slow-moving deliberative representation of people in the senate and also let's not forget that laws can be struck down by the court yeah, that's exactly so even more true. checks yeah, and balances. Even more checks and balances. But let's think about just just the just the disproportionate popular representation, or or the 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 disproportionate representation of lower populous states in the Senate. So currently, because of population differences between a state like California 
and a state like Wyoming that have the same number of senators, that means that in the Senate, a Wyoming voter has 68 times more power than a California voter. 68 times. So let's think about it this way. If you were to group all of the 21 least populous states together, they have enough senators to block literally any, represent, any legislation because of the filibuster. And they only represent 11% of the US population in those states. But think about this. It's not like all of those states are going 100% towards one party or the other. So if you're like right on that 50-50 line, which we often are, that means that 5.5% of the population has the potential to decide the legislative agenda for the other 94.5% of the population. It is remarkable how these rules can so quickly disenfranchise and bias towards the status quo our legislative process. All of a sudden, 94.5% of the population can't get the legislation they want passed if they, even if they all agreed. And because of the concentration of conservative voters in rural areas, that means that conservative voters not only have a natural legislative like bias towards legislative power over more populous states, but because of things like the filibuster, they um, have the potential to just stop everything. And because the conservative ideology is one of government inaction, that means that our whole government is not only biased towards inaction, but the party that is most advantaged by this system is the party of inaction. Yeah. It's crazy. Absolutely. So basically, so just based on the little math that I laid out, a rural Republican voter has 17 times the power to influence legislation in this country than um, like the rest of the country. So, so in those 21 most populous states, they've got, tw they've got 17 times the power to influence legislation than the rest of the country. Yeah. It's not representative. It's not a representative democracy. Yeah. And people people try to pretend and make the argument that, oh, but we don't want the most heavily populous states to have all of the power over the less populous states. Well, they have more voters though. Yeah. Like of course we do. <laughs> so of course they're supposed they're gonna have more power. Yeah. Because the idea of democracy is majority rules, is people vote on things. Yeah. Because land doesn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> people vote. Land doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think it's I think it's also important to note how exactly could reforming or eliminating the filibuster actually work? The most straightforward and simplistic way of doing it would be to just formally change the rule. All right. Mm -hmm. Uh the the text of Senate Rule 22, just formally change it. That's never going to happen. <laughs> Has been tried. <laughs> yeah. The, the, because in order to do that... It gets um, filibustered. Would, yeah, yeah. It, it, it'll get filibustered. You would need 60 votes in order to do that. And that would never happen. Mm -hmm. So there's another way that you can potentially do it. And this is often referred to as the nuclear option. And this one is arbitrarily complicated. Yeah. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to... I'm going to read this to you. 
and we're going to try to break it down what this means. So this comes from the Brookings, uh, the Brookings Institute. A way to ban the filibuster would be to create a new Senate precedent. So the chamber's precedents exist alongside its former rules to provide additional insight in how and when its rules have been applied in particular ways. Importantly, this approach to curtailing the filibuster, colloquially known as the nuclear option, and more formally as reform by ruling in certain circumstances, can be employed with support from only a simple majority of senators. So here's how, that, how it works. The nuclear option leverages the fact that a new precedent can be created by a senator raising a point of order. A point of order is claiming that a Senate rule is being violated. If the presiding officer, who is probably going to be a member of the Senate, agrees that ruling establishes a new precedent. If the presiding officer disagrees, another senator can appeal the ruling of the chair. If a majority of the Senate votes to reverse the decision of the chair, then the opposite of the chair's ruling becomes the new precedent. Hmm. And so, if that made no sense to you, it's because <laughs> it's the Senate. <laughs> so basically, there is a convoluted way such that they can try to introduce something that's not really a rule, but is pretty similar to the rule, and work through a change that um, can overcome the leader of the Senate's opposition with a simple majority. Yeah. Yeah. Basically, basically it's about... Uh, changing the way that the rule is applied. So rule hmm. 22 is still going to be on the books. Gotcha. But the rule is no longer going to be applied. Hmm. So basically a senator is creating a motion that, hey, the uh, the rules of the Senate are being misused. You know, mm -hmm. the rule 22 is being misused. What? So if the, if the, <laughs> if the chair or if the, the presiding officer then says, you know, yes, you are right, then you could potentially change the rule. If they say no, Mm -hmm. which is usually how you uh, how you end up changing the rule, um, then all it takes is a simple majority hmm. in order to override that. So that's one of the reasons why discussions of abolishing the filibuster have been are you know technically possible mm -hmm. uh, if every single Democrat were on board with it. Mm -hmm. So if you know if Joe Manchin were on board with it, you could potentially use this, a specific process in order to, in essence, uh, get rid of the filibuster. Yeah. Now, that's also very unlikely right now. Yeah. Not even Biden. Um, yeah. Not even Biden. Aggressive paragon it. that he is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it is important to note that Joe Biden doesn't technically have any power over it. No, of course. He just has that being said, influence. That being said, uh, Kamala Harris would mm -hmm. because she would have to be the uh, the deciding vote. Yeah. And so, you know, you could you could argue that kind of by association, Biden has power over it because his vice president has power over it. Mm -hmm. um, so that's probably not going to happen. So what are some ways in which you could potentially weaken it in other ways? Well, in some cases, uh, there are what's referred to as mini nukes in which uh, a filibuster can be banned on particular motions. The Senate, the Senate majority could potentially prevent uh, senators from filibustering a, filibustering a motion to start debate on a bill. They would still have the right to keep the debate 
going as long as possible. Sure. So this would actually, doing it this way would actually make it so that you would kind of go back to the traditional way of the filibuster where people would, you, you wouldn't, you wouldn't prevent the start of the bill. Like you wouldn't prevent the, mm. uh, um, it being brought to the floor. Yeah. However, you could still, you could still filibuster, um, once it is brought to the floor and delay its passage. So this prevents the precedent that has been set that makes it so that all people have to do is say, I will filibuster that. And that prevents it from even going to the floor. Mm -hmm. And that could potentially make it so that, um, the filibuster becomes like, you know, it'll be, it would be less powerful and it might only be reserved in situations in which they really, really don't want something to be passed. Yeah. Hmm. Um, another potential option, and this is actually an option that Bernie Sanders was trying to achieve. Mm Mm-hmm would be um, to target the bird rule. So the bird rule basically is about budget reconciliation. Hmm. So the bird rule is about making it so that uh, we limit the number of things that can go into a budget reconciliation bill. Hmm. And the bird rule is interpreted by the parliamentarian. So that's what they used on the $15 minimum wage. Yeah, exactly. So... Um, so the parliamentarian in this specific case, when we're when we're looking at the uh, the the most recent stimulus package that was passed, the parliamentarian ruled that the fifteen dollar an hour minimum wage would not, you know, could not be included into it because it did not fit the parameters of um, of the bird rule. Mm-hmm. But again, the way that it's established is that, like, it's about it's their job to interpret it. Yeah. So all you really need to do is replace them with replace the parliamentarian with someone that agrees with you. Yeah, but how and, many senators does that take to vote? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, interestingly enough, uh, that would just require the party majority. Hmm. Um, they could select a parliamentarian uh, who was willing to like have to advise on weaker enforcement. Yeah. And then just you know do that. Why wouldn't also, that just be the opening move of every Senate majority? Just like well, it is. <laughs> I mean. It, 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 Part of it is precedent, yeah, you know, for sure. Uh, but it actually does happen quite often. I mean, it, that's what was used in order to pass the uh, Bush tax cuts. Uh, also, yeah. the vice president um, can basically just disregard the advice. Hmm. It sounds uh, like one of those precedents that disadvantages Democrats and Republicans just disregard. But that's just <laughs> that's just my editorializing. <laughs> yeah. So so there are ways in which it could potentially be. Um, in which it could potentially be reformed mm-hmm. uh, or effectively gotten rid of. Um, I don't know if there is any chance that it will be effectively gotten rid of. And there is an, and the biggest obstacle to this is of course, Joe Manchin. Yeah. Um, but even but, he has said that he would be open, open to try to reform it in some ways. He's specifically talking about a relatively weak reform, but one where you're actually required to stay there and keep talking while yeah. the filibuster is in process, which yeah, the mini nuke yeah, option. That's like, yeah. that's a pretty big, that could add to your point, as you discussed earlier, that could like make this thing much less damning. It would be a delay rather than a total stoppage of, of legislation, which I think would be a big win. And if Joe Manchin is on board, you can count me in. <laughs> <laughs> Said no one ever. <laughs>
So now it's time for one of our favorite segments, Ass Hat of the Week. So this week, Nathan, who do we got? This one hurts. This one hurts <laughs> me personally, and and I'll explain why in just a sec. But our asshat this week is Kirsten Cinema, mm. and this Arizona, one hurts me, right? Yeah, Arizona Senator Kirsten Cinema from Arizona, and you know, usually our asshats of the week are you know fun and like we're making fun of people, or at least That's, Republicans. <laughs> at least Republicans. I mean, I think we had we had Chuck Todd once, but yeah. like, yeah. yeah, no, I. I feel like we have to do this one. So it is important to provide some caveats to this. So the primary reason in which Kirsten Cinema has made our ass hat of the week list is because not only did she vote against the inclusion of the $15 an hour minimum wage into the final uh, version of the stimulus package, but she did it with this performative gleeful hip-hop and 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 and, you know i'll explain like why that hurts so much in just a sec but before i do get into that i do want to also point out the fact that there were six other democrats and one independent who caucuses with democrats that also voted against it Mm -hmm. and every single one of them is just as guilty of screwing over the american people and also every single Republican voted against this. And they're also equally guilty of screwing over the American people and keeping people in poverty. But the biggest reason why Kirsten Cinema hurts and why she is our asshat is because I actually met her. Mm. A while back, I was working in the media center of the Human Rights Campaign and you know for those of you that aren't familiar that's a massive uh, lgbtq rights organization and she was one of the first openly bisexual uh, at the time she was uh, she was in the house of representatives and she came by alongside another another congressman um to do a video for the human rights campaign and i ran teleprompter for her And I spent some time talking to her about how things were like in the House of Representatives, what it was like to be a rep. And I remember talking to her and just being so inspired by her, so taken by her overall attitude. And just like looking at her background, she seemed like a huge badass. Mm -hmm. I mean, she used to be a member of the Green Party. Mm -hmm. Like she won as an openly bisexual woman in, as she put it at the time, conservative Arizona. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she beat out a Republican in order to do it. And, you know, she was just this badass woman speaking truth to power who had a long history of being openly progressive, like even too much, too progressive for the Democratic Party. Hearing you say that now, it's almost unbelievable that you're talking about Christian cinema. Yeah, I know. And... And I, I, I actually, I remember when that happened, I started following her on social media. Uh, you know, I, li- I liked her page on Facebook and I've been following her ever since. And I've kind of seen a sort of gradual shift. Mm-hmm. And it's really hurt. Yeah. And the biggest reason why I want to single her out, even though all the other senators who voted against this are terrible, is that this really needs to be a cautionary tale. Mm-hmm. This really needs to be a cautionary tale because 
with with a hip pop and a big smile on her face and this performative yay look at me i'm screwing over millions of people like she she damned millions of people to poverty Mm -hmm. like people desperately need a wage increase and she even says that she's even said that many times like she has said that she is for raising the minimum wage This should be a cautionary tale that well-meaning people can go to Washington and allow the cronyism and the corruption to turn them into a monster that cares more about, like, stupid performative crap, that cares more about appeasing donors than pulling the people that voted you in out of poverty. And you can't even make the argument that this was a political decision based on the voters. I mean, John Kelly, who's the other senator, Democratic senator from Arizona, he voted for the inclusion. Mm-hmm. So this one hurts, and it gives me no pleasure to talk about, but this should be a cautionary tale. Mm-hmm. All right? Even Washington people you can love can people. be asshats. Yeah. <laughs> people that you, that you admired, that you were inspired by. Like, because she, she was one of the first politicians that I ever met like in person. She was probably the first democratic politician that I met in person. And I mean, people let you down and it sucks. And congratulations to Kirsten cinema for being our ass hat hat of of the the week. week. All right, so for our third segment, we're taking a bit of a step back from the nitty-gritty that we've been discussing so far this episode to talk a little bit more about um, a framework for uh, identifying, defining, and setting up policies and and the role that government should play in kind of doing that. And and the specific topic that we, that we wanted to talk about today was... Um, something called libertarian paternalism, which if it sounds like a, an oxymoron or a self-contradiction or whatever, <laughs> uh, I think it was intentionally done that way. <laughs> I think, um, so, so this was a concept that was popularized by economist Richard Thaler and legal scholar Cass Sunstein. Now, Cass Sunstein has a pretty mixed reputation um, he's got some history with blocking regula- regulatory um, action under the Obama administration. Um, but on this podcast, we evaluate ideas, not people. Um, so we'll <laughs> we'll leave that to the side. But um, uh, yeah, so they, they kind of popularized this idea. And basically, the, the idea is that it's possible for both public and private institutions to both respect freedom of choice while still affecting people's behavior in a positive way. And, and they, uh, Thaler and Sunstein write about this, um, specifically because they know that people they're, you know, they're, they're in the behavioral school of economics and they know that people are not perfectly rational actors. And because that's true, they basically advocate that policies and decisions should be set up in a way that enables people's even people's irrational side to leave them in a relatively well-off state. At least that's the goal 
of this libertarian paternalism. So basically they argue that it's paternalistic in the sense that it tries to influence people to make uh, better choices as set up by, you know, as determined by whoever sets up the choice. Um, and it's libertarian in that it is designed to be, uh, to leave as many choices open and be as, to be kind of a least restrictive option. So you can always choose to do whatever you would have done otherwise. And, and that's like a really fine line to walk, I think, because I mean, any oxymoron is probably or paradox. Um, but basically, like, I'd argue that, you know, you should try to make it as easy as possible for people to make whatever choice they wanted. Even if you do set it up such that set up these choices such that, you know, they make they're more likely to make the choice that whoever the choice architect is thinks is the right one for them. Um, so like an example of one of something that's like probably not cool is charging a bunch of extra taxes on smoking and drinking, right? Like that's like actually pretty paternalistic. You're literally like using people's economic incentives to make it harder for them to make a choice yeah. versus like, um, you know, like, putting out ads about the negative consequences of smoking so that you take take advantage of the availability heuristic where people uh, are more influenced by things that are more present in their mind to make them think twice about whether they want to smoke. So basically, uh, this would also come into play when you have um, like financial incentives yes. for, uh, you know, for like driving... Uh, driving fuel efficient cars sure or potentially uh financial incentives tax breaks for uh uh like hiring for a company hiring more workers or the subsidizing of um of companies that like switch over to green energy mm. so i think i think that could probably all fall under this kind of umbrella yeah like trying to basically give people carrots um rather than sticks but also at the same time, um, from a less probably less of a like uh, incentive-based architecture and more of a more of a uh, designing these policies so that when people make choices that are predictably irrational, they end up making the right choice most of the time. Yeah. So so the reason so so to give uh, to give kind of an example. Um, so we know that people stick to the default options that they're set up with almost all the time. Like think about your own life, like think about your phone. You probably have almost all of the settings on your phone exactly the way they were when it was set up. You might have changed your background, but you probably haven't changed your background more than once or twice. <laughs> <laughs> So like, so people tend to be biased towards like the status quo, toward the default, towards inaction. And so if you set up a policy such that inaction is a good choice, then that policy is going to be way more successful than setting up the default such that the policy is a neutral or a bad choice. Um, and, and the reason that is, is because there's, because every... Every time you set something up 
in society, every time you like offer a choice to someone, you influence how that person chooses by the way you set up the choice. For, so for you, Nathan, like I bet that among students, if you have multiple choice on your test, among students who just guess, they probably guess towards a C answer because it's not the top or the bottom. Yeah. Like, like people are predictably irrational in the way they choose things. So if we set things up so that when they do that, they end up choosing, like if, for example, if you put the right answer at C a disproportionate amount of time, you would probably drive up the percentage or the grade point average for your class because you're setting it up so that when they choose in a predictably irrational way, they choose right. Yeah. I mean, that's why I have Canvas automatically mix up the uh, (laughs) the answers. Exactly, because you would probably do that too. Well, yeah. Well, I've found in the past when I've created exams that uh, like I either subconsciously have too many of the answers bc mm-hmm. and then when i realize it you go no too answer far the other C. way yeah. yeah exactly i go too far yep. in the other direction yeah uh so it really does help to sort of vary it uh, another example that kind of came to mind while you were talking about this is also automatic voter registration yeah absolutely so like that's a, if, that's if a people real, that's a huge one. If, pe- if people are automatically registered to vote um then you know they still have the decision not to vote if they don't yeah, want to. You're not forced to vote. We want you to be able to choose not to but vote. But you don't have to but you don't have to take this extra step in order to register to vote. Exactly. So it's still it's still libertarian yeah. in that it's still like you are providing choices the government isn't forcing you to do anything. Mm-hmm. Um however, it is making it so the default option is the easiest option and you know the the, the best option. Yeah. So I do I do like this overall framework. Here's my counterpoint, though. For sure. So a lot of this assumes that the general public is trusting of the government. Mm. And that's not necessarily true. You so mean like one of getting people to actually embrace this framework assumes that they that the they believe that the government has their best interests at heart. Yeah, exactly. Mm. So like I mean think of it this way. Um you know, you might have think about the vaccine rollout. Yeah. So you might have um, a government who says, we're not going to mandate vaccines, Mm -hmm. but we are going to provide a lot of information about vaccines. We're going to have public campaigns in which we encourage you to get vaccinated. Mm -hmm. We're going to provide them for free. All you need to do is drive over here and, you know, get yourself stuck. But the issue is you have a large contingent of people that are regularly lied to that are given um these you know bullshit conspiracy theories about bill gates putting microchips Mm -hmm. into vaccines and there are a lot of people and and, and, you know one of the case and points that i would that i would bring up would be tucker carlson Mm -hmm. who actually made the argument that the fact that the government is trying to um is trying to you know have all of these campaigns uh, promoting the vaccine, that that right there, the mm-hmm. fact that they're doing that is evidence that you should be skeptical of the vaccines. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that's like a weakness if you think that having a vaccine mandate is the right thing to do, right? Like if you want a more paternalistic perspective, then it's a bug. 
if you want a yeah. less paternalistic perspective that still gets people to try to make the best choice, then it's a feature. Well, but when we're talking about something as important as vaccines, especially sure. when we're talking about vaccines for a deadly disease that, yeah. uh, you know, that will continue to spread mm -hmm. and continue to affect people and hurt other people, if we don't have herd immunity, yeah. then, you know, obviously we want more people to get it. Yeah. And and my issue here, and, and I've, I believe I've made the argument on the pod in the past about how uh, I do, uh, among certain diseases mm -hmm. among certain diseases that are number one communicable and number two deadly mm -hmm. that i do believe in in mandated vaccines yeah um yeah yeah i know i think that's a strong point i think like i think in this case in in a case like that the argument that your decisions actually have an impact on the people around you such that you probably shouldn't be making them in a vacuum and you should probably actually have like a requirement to make the right decision. I think like that's pretty compelling here. Like, yeah. like I think, I think libertarianism as we've discussed on this podcast and just in general requires that whatever Liberty it is ends when it harms someone else. And yeah. so there's, I you, think you you're can, right. You that can like, swing your, you can yeah. swing your fist out all over the place all you want that freedom ends as soon as it hits my face. Yeah, exactly. And so like, I think, I think that is like compatible with this perspective because of that view of libertarianism and just, and like, I would say that like, okay. I would say that like, um, you know, public health is probably a, a more controversial example of that, but one that I personally find quite compelling, but like, mm. you're right that like, you know, driving your car too fast is like clearly an example that we accept that is yeah. not your right to drive your car as fast as you want because of the likely if not inevitable impact that you would have on someone else's life so basically what you're saying is that if we do uh if we do use the general libertarian threshold mm -hmm. of when something should be uh, prevented or regulated by the government yeah. that still functions into paternalistic uh, libertarianism. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, the other aspects of it, the other parts of it are the things that are not necessarily going to hurt other people, but could potentially help you personally. Yeah, exactly. Okay. The whole idea sense. is to try to get people that makes sense. as much liberty with as much chance of making the right choice as possible. Like okay. easy, beneficial liberty. <laughs> you know what I mean? So like, so like one example, um, so, so one, one argument I do want to make here is that, um, and th this is an argument that they've made in their literature as well, is that it's pretty much impossible to set up a choice without having to make choices about how you set up that choice. So what I mean to say is they talk in, in their literature about choice architecture in that how you set up, and going back to the multiple choice example, how you set up the test, how you set up the choices makes a difference to the ultimate results. And so you you chose a couple things. Like one, you can make no answers C. Second option, you can make all the right answers C. Third option, you could go random. But either in any of those cases, you do have to choose. There's no such thing as, as refusing to choose how to set something up. So yeah. you might as well set it up 
such that when people are predictably irrational, they make the right choice. An example I have is like, what if you got rid of like the individual mandate for healthcare, but everybody was automatically opted in, but it was really easy for them to opt out. So you're not, you're not pulling money out of anybody's wallet. You're like maximally libertarian, except people are required to opt out. Imagine how many people would end up because they just don't care or are not paying attention would end up picking by default having healthcare, which circumvents some really important cognitive biases, right? It circumvents the fact that people are more likely to be optimistic about an uncertain future. It circumvents the bias that people are um, more short-sighted than long, than like emphasizing the long view. Um, and so like it enables us to go because you, your bias towards the default wins out, you make the best choice. And if you don't want to make that choice, you still have all of the option to not to go without healthcare. If, if you think that's really the best choice for you, but it makes you think, or it makes you do the right thing. Okay. So with that, um, we just want to throw out there as we do every week, uh, since we launched our Patreon, that if you like what you heard and you want to support us, uh, you can head on over to uh, patreon.com slash the perspectrum and uh, throw us a couple bucks uh, or one or nothing. And on that page, you can find our resources. You can find my notes. And if you do decide to uh, support us financially, you get access to our post perspectrum uh, talk back afterwards where Nathan and I have an unfiltered, uncut post spectrum conversation. Yeah. Um, yeah, we're still, we're still kind of, uh, deciding whether we're going to call it perspectrum uncut or post spectrum. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it's super cool. You know, we, uh, we have a lot of fun talking about yeah. stuff and you, you kind of get a little bit of an insight into, uh, our, our relationship. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Super cool. Yeah. So to close out, Nathan, what's your highlight this week? Uh, my highlight this week is that there's a lot of work that I got done. Um, this is, uh, we're coming into midterms week, and I finally finished constructing my midterm. Uh, constructing a midterm <laughs> is hell. <laughs> Especially when all the answers can't be C. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Don't tell my students. <laughs> um, but I got that done. And uh, hopefully the rest of the week is going to be a little bit less stressful, but we will see because I also am a little bit backed up on grading. <laughs> uh, what's your highlight, Michael? My highlight this week, as lame as it sounds, is the weather. It has been <laughs> sunny. It has been mid-60s to, to mid-70s, and I'm just so psyched about spring. Like, I come off a, a ski vacation where it's, like, single digits to, like, negative with wind <laughs> chill and immediately come back to this springtime. It makes me so enthusiastic. I'm so excited for the summer. I'm excited to get vaccinated and then be able to go and do things. Yeah. The world is an amazing place. So <laughs> that is, uh, that's my highlight. And so with that, thank you so much for listening to The Perspectrum, and you'll hear from us again. <laughs>